This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now. Welcome to Lama Suryadas's Awakening Now podcast. We are very pleased to share with you Lama's unique illumination of the awakened awareness teachings. If you are interested in supporting Lama Suryadas's podcast, please go to beherenownetwork.com/suryadas. Of course, there's no gender in the ultimate nature, only in the relative conventional sense and world, and even that's a little bit slippery. We've talked about Tara, the female Buddha, the most popular Buddhist archetype or goddess in Far East Asia, the personification or embodiment of the sacred feminine energy, a feminine principle within us all. The Buddha of compassion in Tibetan, Chinrezi, and Sanskrit, Avalokita, Shada, Avalokita, Kuan Yin, and so on, the most popular goddess in Far East Asia. The Buddha of compassion, Chinrezi, is actually androgynous and sometimes imaged as female as Kuan Yin. So this isn't really an androgynous archetype of compassion with the four arms representing the four faces of Buddhist love, as you can see in the tanka here behind the screen, which we saw yesterday. <laughs> the scroll on the wall, two hands together in prayer, holding wish-fulfilling blue crystal jewel that radiates wish-fulfilling juju whatever is needed throughout the world, the universe, whatever form it's needed, it can assume. And one hand holding a lotus and one hand holding a mala, representing wisdom and skillful means or compassion in action. Lotus, wisdom, growing out of the mud of delusion and skillful means. So the four faces of Buddhist love, Technically, the four Brahma Viharas, the four divine abodes, how the gods roll, how the gods live, the four heartitudes, however you want to translate that, the four boundless, we call it in Tibetan, loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equal to all, equanimity equal to all. Just bracketing 
the naked awareness practice, trajud, seeing through, cutting through, being through. But as for the main practice in the middle, the non-conceptual naked awareness practice, that's mainly what I'm concentrating on, as you know, day to day, first talking about just sitting, just breathing, just being aware of the three naturals, natural body, natural breath and energy, natural mind, natural unmeditation, undoing the habit of overdoing, pure presence, the art and practice of presencing, whatever you want to call it. Silent meditation would be a weak translation of that. But that part of the session, the awareness practice, the main part. And then building on that, practicing this cutting through or seeing through in the form of sky gazing with open eyes and everything open. Sky gazing, space mingling, infinite dissolving. Nam Kainaljur in Tibetan, sky space union yoga. Getting out of ourselves, not just always thinking about what about me? Like going our habitual egocentric reference points, even meditator and meditation object, letting go of that. And just awareness, aware of awareness, not me meditating or concentrating on the candle flame or the mantra or the visualization. And not stressing concentration so much as openness, big sky mind, inclusive, naturalness, and so on. Some of the principles of Dzogchen that we could um, talk about, we will talk about uh, tomorrow. Spontaneity, naturalness, flow, you know, awareness, and so on. Lucidity. Notice I'm not saying calm and clear, concentrated, one-pointed, things like that. Sky gazing, space mingling, infinite dissolving. Practicing the four great flops or the four choke shocks, which we had on the board yesterday. The view, like a, the sky, without center, without corners, without periphery. Open, luminous, accommodating everything, without changing, whether there are clouds or not. View like the sky, the bigger picture, the great outlook. That's the ground of the great perfection practice. And then the path of the great perfection practice, the meditation of non-meditation, as I mentioned, Buddhahood without meditation, as Dujimimpche called it in his big text on that subject. Meaning, without crossing your legs, closing your eyes, crossing your fingers, and hoping to get enlightened. But awareness, always, Taishepa, Rigpa, Soma Jempa, Dujimimpche said, I heard him say it in Tibetan so many times. Uncooked, fresh, raw, naked awareness is the Buddha within. Not concentrated mind, not empty mind, not states like no thought or loving kindness. Those are other practices. Those are part of the tradition. But we're concentrating here on the main practice of Dzogchen, Tregchud, cutting through, seeing through, being through, presencing, whatever you want to call it, natural and meditation. The view, the meditation, like a mountain, imperturbable, unshakable, balanced, grounded, no matter what falls on it or grows on it, meditation, like a mountain. That's the path 
the ground path and fruit, the view of meditation and action, the meditation like a mountain, the action inexhaustible and obstructed like the ocean's waves as needed, not compulsive, conditioned, egocentric activity, but proactive, liberating Buddha activity. View meditation and action, the ground path and fruit of the great perfection. That's how Dzogchen and his sister practice Mahamudra explained in the penthouse of the Vajrayana, the non-dual, direct access, awakefulness now. Traditions of Vajrayana Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism, Vajrayana Buddhism, the diamond path, tantric path, Vajrayana Buddhism. Swooping down from above with the view while climbing up from below through relative practices according to one's inclinations and capacities through the three trainings which form the Eightfold Path and so on. We've gone over all this. The Chokshak Shi, just resting, the four great flops, Chokshak, supreme restings. Hard to translate some of these words. Choke shock, supreme shock, resting. The view like the sky, that's the first choke shock. Just leaving it as it is. The second choke shock, the meditation like a mountain, leave it as it is. The action like the ocean's waves, leave it as it is. If there's waves, no problem, you don't need to iron it out. If there are brain waves, no problem, you don't need to flatline. If there are thoughts, no problem. Just not getting caught up in chains of discursive thinking. Awareness of thoughts is meditation. Mindful of thoughts, moment to moment, is meditation. Mindful of sounds is meditation. You don't need to plug your ears up. If you start going in that direction, you need eye plugs, ear plugs, nose plugs, mouth plugs, and body plugs, numb out, and mind plug. There are pills and bottles for that, but it's not recommendable. We're going in the other direction. If you read my most recent book, Make Me One With Everything, Buddhist Meditations to See Through the Illusion of Separateness, about co-meditation, intermeditation, interbeing. How about releasing, not going inward and trying to get away from it all, or have a vacation, but integration, releasing with the out-breath into everything, co-meditating with sound, co-meditating with sights, co-meditating with others, with pet, with enemy, with God, co-meditating, I love water. So as soon as I see water, it's like natural meditation. Ah. Hear the waves, the waves do it for me. I don't have to close my eyes and try to concentrate on my breath and be distracted by thoughts. Just be near the waves or the waterfall or the placid lake and it kind of washes everything away. Ah without anything going anywhere. Co-meditating with water. So releasing, dissolving the separateness of the subject-object dichotomy. We're just chanting, co-meditation with chant, with music, sacred chanting, just chanting, letting everything else go. Letting, let go and let Buddha do it is a nice slogan. Let Buddha use your lips and your mouth and your lungs. We can kind of see that, can't we, when we get into chanting? Not to codify or solidify Buddha, just, you know, 
let it happen. And it starts happening by itself, even when you stop. The mind mantra is going around. Sky gazing, sort of co-meditating with space as a metaphor for openness, awareness, non-judgmental, not picking and choosing and grasping and grabbing and pushing away, attachment and aversion, the basic dance we go through life and so exhausting, based on the delusion of separateness, the third poison, ignorance. So the four choke shock, like the sky view, like the meditation, like the mountain meditation, like the ocean's wave, action according to conditions and circumstances, not our will, our desires, our compulsions. Not passive, but non-aggressive. When there's wind, waves, no wind, no waves. Like with the crystal I mentioned yesterday, if there's light, colors are refracted, like the movie on the screen, if there's a projector. If there's no light coming through it, it's not bored with light refracting through it and multiple rainbow colors, it doesn't move, it doesn't change. If there's no light coming through it, it doesn't move, it doesn't change. If there's a color behind it, it takes on that hue, it doesn't move, it doesn't change. That's like the crystal clear, empty, lucid, luminous, unobstructed nature of the mind. We'll get to that. So the four choke shock, she, not Z, you can fix that. I'm editing these as we go. You can see I'm not even using my hands. I'm just like, you know, willing it. <laughs> she, the ground. Like the sky, like the mountain, like the ocean waves. And fourth, choke shock, Rigpa. Awareness, true nature, authenticity, just being yourself. You see how self creeps in, it gets complicated. Just being is the fourth choke shock, leave it as it is. And these are really four in one in daily life. Of course, while you're meditating, you know, you take a certain posture, you have a certain way of gazing, you have a time period, it's all very, you know, there's a form, there's a protocol, it's kind of formal practice. But as a Zen master said, and I lived in Japan one year and studied Zen and taught English and studied haiku and so forth, studying Zen with the Japanese Zen masters. The Zen master said, when I asked, yes, this is this Zazen, this sitting Zen, it seems very formal and protocol and don't move and, you know, 20 or 40 minutes at a time. But what it allows is totally informal mind. Formal posture, informal mind, leave it as it is. No need to radiate light, change the inner scenery or quiet the thoughts, visualize Buddha, look at Buddha or anything. Sitting Zen is sitting Buddha, that's a quote. You can read about this in the Zen classic, Zen Mind beginner's mind by the pioneering Zen master who came to San Francisco in the 60s, Suzuki Roshi, and lived there in the 70s, 80s maybe. Formal 
posture in a formal mind. Trungpa Rinpoche called the great Buddhist pioneer in Boulder. Trungpa Rinpoche, the Tibetan master, said, Tamagi Shepa. His students started to call it TGS. First time I heard that, I said, oh, is that a fraternity at Naropa University? <laughs> <laughs> I want to join TG, Tamagi Shepa, TGS. It means ordinariness or naturalness, like whatever your mind's doing right now, that's the Buddha mind in action. We just don't realize it. That's why the Dzogchen saying, we're all Buddhas by nature. We only have to recognize that fact. The Hivadra Tantra, the Laughing Diamond Scripture Tantra says, we're all Buddhas by nature. It's only adventitious obscurations which veil that fact. It's only temporary obscurations which veil that fact. Like the clouds veil the sun. If we don't know, if we're young, if we've lived underground our whole life or something, we don't know why there's daylight unless we, you know, maybe it's explained, but we still don't really know. When we see the sun, then we know, and then the clouds come and cover it, and the sun goes away from our point of view. Everything is so subjective. From our perspective, the sun goes away, but it's really the clouds have obscured it, right? And yet there's still daylight. At night, you know, the earth turns away and it's dark. The sun hasn't gone away, but the earth, our part of the earth has turned away. So it's so subjective. Yesterday, somebody asked about enlightenment, enlightenment experience, satori, breakthrough, and so on. These days, it seems easier to get enlightened like that than to stay enlightened. We can have a breakthrough, we can have a dip. We can experience oneness, bliss, sachidananda, the unconditioned, whatever we call it in our human language. But then the habits, the karmas and kalashas again obscure the sun-like, ever-present, adamantine, changeless Buddha nature. But now we know it's there. Everything has changed. We know there's a there there. We know where to look for the sunrise. We don't look all around the horizon, 360 for the sunrise. We know it's in the east. We realize that what we seek is within. It's within each and all of us. It's within every moment. What we seek, we are, if you want to stretch the metaphor. We put that on a t-shirt once. I got a lot of questions about that. <laughs> Especially because the, the person that made the t-shirt wrote, what we are, we are what we seek. We are what we seek, not what we seek, comma, we are. <laughs> anyway, translation. It's a matter of translation. Something gets lost in the translation. You should hear. You should go and see Shakespeare in Japan in Japanese. Oh my God! As as a Japanese person told me, it's just really the same. It's isn't it? It's just they lost the puns. <laughs> oh, that's the whole thing. So this is the basis or background or theoretical framework for our practice that looks like just sitting. It's a little different outlook, though, than just sitting of Zen or just sitting in, 
Vipassana or mindfulness or just sitting in samadhi and yoga or the corpse pose afterwards. The, the meditation or the action might be very same or similar, but the view might be a little different. Like, we're all Buddhas by nature, so in, when you're lying in the corpse pose, it's, you know, Buddha lying in the corpse pose. You might be a sleeping Buddha, but still Buddha by nature, like water and ice, same, different temporary states, same nature. That's why the Zen master sang in the Zazen Wasen, the Song of Zazen, this very body is the body of Buddha. He wasn't talking about himself. This very, you should say this to yourself in the first person. You know, you sing the song. This very body is the body of Buddha. This very land is the pure land. And he didn't mean Japan. This very land is the pure land. This very body is the body of Buddha. That's a radical statement. Hard to swallow. Sometimes it's said when teachings like that are given, half the people throw up. I won't go into that kind of sectarian story. So the view, meditation, and action is the ground path and fruit of the great perfection. It's the Dharmakaya is like the view, and the Sambhogakaya is a little more, has a form, isn't so empty or vague, you know, is the practice like meditation, meditation retreat, awareness, cultivation, practice. And then the Nirmanakaya, manifestation, tulku, manifestation, is the action. The bodhisattva, paramitas, panacean practices, and so on. Good, good actions. We could talk about this at another level, which is um, rarely found. I don't know if you have a slide on this. Ngoa, Rangshin, and Tugje. Do you have that? Essence, nature, and, man, and um, unobstructed compassion. I call this the Mahamudra refuge, just like the meditator's refuge. As we rest in the empty, spacious, empty, clear, shunyata nature of the mind, and enjoy the Sambhogakaya, that's the Dharmakaya, the empty, open, spacious, infinite nature of the mind, and enjoy the Sambhogakaya, the luminosity, the radiance, whatever, the projections on the silver screen of emptiness, the projections of all of our karmic perceptions is the Sambhogakaya. It's really mostly energy and perception. It's not yet solidified into Nirmanakaya, Tulku, walking this earth forms, name and form. So we call that the nature of the mind, the essence of the mind, and the unobstructed compassionate responsiveness is not a bad word, of the mind, the heart mind, the spiritual mind. So I won't belabor that point. It's time for questions. We have a few slides. We'll put them on paper and get it up there. We'll put it on the bulletin board. The reason I mention this is this because it's practice-oriented. This is like a deeper, also, you know, my way of understanding and explaining it, where you can find this in texts and in Western classics like Waking Up to Your Life by Ken McLeod, an overlooked classic of Western Buddhism and Mahamudra. Wake Up to Your Life by Ken McLeod. Resting, open, 
yet lucid, luminous, and yet unobstructed responsiveness as needed, if needed. If there's a fire drill, you're capable of getting up. You don't just stay in the emptiness instead of you know, noting that it's fire drill and responding appropriately. That would be insanity. That's nihilism, too much emptiness. The greatest philosopher, perhaps, of India, Nagarjuna, the greatest Buddhist philosopher of India, Nagarjuna, founder of the Middle Way, Madhyamika, the Middle Way philosophy, he said, pathetic or sad are those who cling to material reality as the only thing, but more pathetic is like, woe to those who cling to emptiness. They can hardly be helped. Like somebody clinging to emptiness is in the pit of nihilism and you reach your hand in and they say, no hand, (laughs) no help. Okay, if you can live that way in the pit of emptiness. So any questions, please, we're sharing. Yes, in the back row, John Horgan. Author and thinker. So this is a question that came to me this morning when I was staring at the sky on the front lawn and trying to think of nothing. So imagine you're... You told me that yesterday, and I said, how do you think of nothing? It's hard. I was trying. In in your interview. Yeah, it's hard to think of nothing. So And what um, is nothing, etc. So here's a question, or it's a situation. You're, You're on your path. You're just starting the quest for enlightenment. And the devil comes up to you, and the devil says, I'm going to give you a choice. You can either be fully enlightened for the rest of your life, but you can never talk to anybody about it. Or you can write a best-selling book about enlightenment that helps thousands or even millions of people become enlightened, and it makes you rich and famous, but you will never be enlightened. So what do you do? What do you choose? <laughs> Since you're always trying to, as you told me, as they think about nothing and all, I wanted you to hear the sound of nothing. You know, it's like a bellows. The more nothing, the more empty, the more wind, hot air can come out. So the vacuity makes the hollow sound, or, but it's hard to grab a hold of. As to your question, um, it's so theoretical, I don't know. Some have sold out, some haven't. Some say that Jesus was given such a choice. I'm not going to comment on what choice he made or if it was right or wrong, but you know what, you know what I'm saying? That the devil, I mean, this is all myth and metaphor. Offered him all the powers in the world if he would, you know, whatever, be a devil too, which is just a personification of the dark side. Um, It's a hard choice, you know. It's hard to stand up with integrity when tempted by the demons or devils. 
So those of you who may be secular, postmodern thinkers who aren't here, you know, for the religion, but for the like inner science and the techniques that make you clearer and feel better, maybe you're familiar with uh, Buddhist uh, history. It says that Buddha sat under the tree for a long time, and he was tempted by all kinds of temptations, including Mara the head devil of demon of, you know, Eastern, of Indian cosmology, mythology, let's say, tempted him and appeared as the most beautiful. Uh, first tried to scare him with, like, lightning and arrows and what kinds of rocks and, let's say, dangers. And he kept meditating. And then Mara's daughters appeared to tempt him sensually, sexually, you know. So this is, the, the moral of the story is, you know, keep meditating. Don't be fooled by what, what, what did I say? Dreamlike, temporary, ownerless, momentary appearances, phenomena or noumena. So that's kind of the moral of the story. So you can have it all. You can have the fame and glory and help others. I get, the reason I ask this is I... I but Bo, did Buddha have it all in that sense? What would you say? I would say yes. Did he have the fame, glory, and you left out an important American word. Oh, wealth, know, the bestseller. <laughs> bestsellers, wealth, power. See, he had cities, powers, like to help, to heal, to awaken. I don't know if he had uh, political power over the whole world or the economy, did he? Anyway, what's your real question? My real Because que you're putting this as an either or, and I've been extolling the middle way, Buddha's greatest teaching, the middle way all week. Okay, so part of this comes not from... Not all or nothing, not eat black and white, not always, never, not it... spiritual or worldly, but the yin-yang of things. Light I would and just, shadow, inseparable. I would assume it's harder to remain awakened when you're also a teacher, writer, communicator. If it's not, that's good news. It's not necessarily. I mean, it might be. It depends. It wasn't harder for Buddha, apparently, or I don't know. There are other people we could quote. Uh, mentioned that we sort of hear about or even met Jay Krishnamurti. I don't know if it's harder for the Dalai Lama. It seems harder for the 17th, the young Karmapa in exile. Um, you know, some people get corrupted by power or fame or wealth, and some don't. Some pull, responsibility pulls the best out of them rather than the worst. You know, like there's angry drunks and there's, uh, I don't know, Probably bodhisattva drunks. I don't know. I'm just it's an example. <laughs> when you're not inhibited or regulated, you know what happens. Okay. Thanks. Appreciate. It. There are um, Buddhas who are not teachers, or didn't have any teacher, like Pratyeka Buddhas. They're called so, you know, solitary Buddhas as well as like active turning the wheel of 
Dharma, you know, teachers like the Buddha we think of in history 2,600 years ago. Just like now, there are hidden tzaddiks and saints and let's call them enlightened or saints everywhere that are not necessarily in what you're calling a famous or a teacher or a leadership role. I've even written about some like Exxon Ken, I wrote about in Awakening Buddha Within, the saintly sage with his can of malt liquor and his right-wing views who used to own Ken's Exxon in Woodstock, who had been in the Korean War and was such a bodhisattva. Let me, can I personalize it? When you're dealing, when you're writing, you've written many books, when you're dealing with publishers and agents, people like that, that commercial world, is that a compliment to your own practice or is it in conflict with your own practice? It's a compliment to the practice of the enemy could be the best teacher. <laughs> Not because they're all enemy, but you know, the difficulty, the challenge could be the best teacher. You know, you're a poet, you're a writer, and all of a sudden you're negotiating with somebody who went to law and MBA school about you know, getting your stuff out there. So I'll quote Ramdas on this. He said, love, serve, and remember. My God and my guru always taught me to love, serve, and remember God and serve and selfless service. And so I write my books and I, give, and I teach and I try to live in that way. But when I go in to meet the publisher with my literary agent at my side, we screw them to the wall for the best deal we can get for the, for the work. Wow, that's great advice. Thank you very that's much. That's the middle way, <laughs> I guess. I wish or, I had or talked to you 20 way. years ago. Yeah, well, it's never too late to hear the wisdom from the masters and through, through their own experience. It's not what he expected, but it's what he learned to do in order for the work to be gotten out there further and better and a better cover be put on it and better advertising and things like that rather than just... Here's the book, do whatever you want with it. We're trying to give it away on the street corner. You know, the stuff they give away in the street corner, if you don't take it or you take it and throw it in the next garbage can, because it's free. Anyway, any other questions, especially about practice we're doing? Yes, Pete Sachs. How you doing? Quick one on the in the four flops, and you have as it is uh, uh, action. Is, is that referring to, um, Julie, I think, was, was talking about that being sort of with the ocean's waves, kind of like your breath, but is that also then just like, would that be like, you know, if you want to move around or whatever, is that the, as it is, is, is that to... Remember the scheme of the view is see it as it is? The meditation is leave it as it is, and the action is like according to as it is, as, you know, as needed. Like the breath is a good example. The, I don't know, I think it's called the autonomic nervous system, but just as a layperson, I'm going to call it the automatic nervous system. There are things like the breath and the beating of the heart that's the automatic. So leave it as it is. You, know, you don't have to stop it to get more peaceful. Of course, if it's racing, you might. But in general, 
it breathes you. You don't really breathe as a willful participant. Similarly, with thoughts and feelings and perceptions and awareness, leave it as it is. So Friday, we'll get to action. We've been doing mostly view and meditation. Friday, we'll talk more about integrating with daily life and the action and the bodhisattva paramitas and service and, and all that and how to practice in home and in daily life. But let me say something else related to this. So therefore, the greatest Dzogchen master, Longchenpa, said the five senses left in their natural state is the way of the natural great perfection, Dzogchen. So that's about action. You don't have to close your eyes to be in the view or have earplugs or be in a silent place or in nature or not have pain or not have feelings. How much you suffer from the pain is very much up to you. So this this then, I was reading it as like, it's, it's obviously a map that you can use in like living no, off I, the cushion. Obviously. And right. then also on the cushion. On the cushion. So, That's why I said the, the action is that thoughts and feelings and perceptions continue to come up. What about moving around? Like ocean's or, waves. That, that type of thing. Like if, yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. So while you're sitting, then it's, you, you notice I didn't stress as much as that Zen master, like not moving or posture for that matter, although I mentioned in the beginning an upright spine and all, and the gaze and not up and not down and the eyes, but um, only you know if you're being restless or you're being relaxed. You know, like what does the naturalness really mean? Naturalness is the way. What does naturalness really mean? Continuing your addictive, unfulfilling, you know, dysfunctional, individual and collective related behavior. You know, being bent out of shape may seem natural now, but health is the natural state. Illness and addiction and being bent out of shape is the aberration. You know, being bent out of shape. The natural state is in shape, is the original shape, like a snake. If a snake is tied up in knots, this is an image of Rigpa or your Buddha nature. If the snake is tied up in knots, it's still a snake. It's the same snake. It's just coiled or tied up in knots. So you might want to untie the knots. Snakes have a hard time swimming or, you know, whatever they do, slithering in knots. But from the point of view of the natural state, it's still a snake. Well, coiled up, it's still a snake. It doesn't have to be straight. Right? So only you know if you're being restless. And if you or relax, that's why relaxation and breathing and letting go and letting be is emphasized so much in this practice. In other practices, there's more action, prostrations, <clears throat> breath, wind, walking, running, lungam, Tibetan yoga, um, mudras, rituals, bowing. You know, after you do your hundred thousand bows and your hundred thousand hundred syllable mantras and other things, then, you know, you have a different relation to moving and you're glad to just sit still. That's true. <laughs> Which is the idea. Like in yoga, bending forward and bending back. We're usually so much bent into action, right? We're brought up that way. My grandmother always used to say, Jeffrey, don't just sit there, do something. 
I mean, she hardly had to say that to me, but maybe she said it to my, to my brother or sister or somebody. But now, you know, the cartoon would be the Zen master saying, don't just do something, sit there. Sit. <laughs> the dog Zen master, sit. <laughs> so I hope that's helpful. It is, yeah. So if you feel like, you know, awesome gratitude or something, sometimes you go like this. I mean, I do. While I'm sitting. Yeah, it's just That's like not balancing. a restless motion. Yeah, it's kind of like balancing when you're being disciplined, when you're being lazy. When yes. you're, when you're, you're that, being lazy by not disciplining yourself for right. being too disciplined. And yes. sitting there when you shouldn't be, when your knee is actually going to burst. Yeah, you don't you want know, to do it's, that. It's just like trying to figure that is kind of what I'm referring to. But like what about action. when your feet fall asleep? Is that a dangerous situation? Or are we no. just habituated to like, oh, I have to move. Otherwise, it might fall off from gangrene in the next, <laughs> in the next 20 minutes stop being a baby before then. he rings the gong. <laughs> <laughs> we, we never lost any legs yet that way. <laughs> but not the extremes, so the middle way. So balancing effort and effortless, yet holding always the intention. You know, the bodhisattva intention, the practice, the awakening, intention and attention. And paying attention. Also when you're walking, when they ring the gong for lunch, you know, what do you do? If you overthink about it, you might start worrying about that. Should I run there and be first before all the, I don't know, what cookies are gone? Should I walk there slowly like a normal person, like everybody else? Should I walk more slow, like in slow motion, like mindful walking, like at those retreat centers where people live in their slippers and walk around in kind of scrub, like maroon scrubs all day? Lifting, placing, putting, you know? Mindful walking. If your kid, you have a few kids, right, Pete? If your kid runs in the street, what do you do? Do you think about what to do? Or do you, like, leap over a few cars and houses and, like, you know, the adrenaline and you scream? Yeah, anything. Get out of the street, yeah, right, anything. So there's different, you know, yeah. So that's called natural. So when the gong rings, you know, you salivate like a dog. That's natural. You don't necessarily have to drool and everybody will make fun of you. You just, but you know, it's kind of natural. There are other natural functions of your body, not necessarily to be suppressed, and of your emotions and feelings and mind and even psychic. So, so much of the child's psychic abilities are drummed out of them by socialization, by school, by family, by parents, by church, socialization. So it's a balance between effort and effortless. That's why we, I mentioned yesterday, Nyosho Kempo and Che always talked about newer days, Okpachempo, swift and cozy, like direct access, not austerities, not you know, following the slogan of no pain, no gain. That's a different way. He always used to say, and I'll give you the Tibetan because it's hard to translate. You listening? Look, look. <laughs> which should speak for itself. Look, look. It's like, ah. Ah. But that doesn't mean falling asleep. Thus, you know, ah.
And also not hypnotizing yourself and being dazed by staring too much. Again, not natural. Last question? Yes, Terry. Well, I think you answered most of it, but um, it's in, on the same subject of you know, leaving it as it is. Um, I guess it's just a lot of emotion that just keeps coming up because when, when I get into the isness, I guess, then there's a big heart opening and I'm seeing, um, then, I, then I feel faced with, you know, dualism that comes in too. And I have a big mixing of joy and sorrow. I mean, you could just walk up to me and say, Om Mani Padme Hum, I might start crying. So, you know, it's kind of uncomfortable. Life is uncomfortable. That's like the first noble truth. And, you know, even intense, that's a little addition. So you're an intense person. And also you're well socialized, so a lot of this intensity is kept down and in the right channels. Dr. Terry Bedar is well socialized and, you know, knows how to show up and put it on appropriately. So here we're kind of taking off the straight jackets and, you know, kind of like it could be open heart surgery if you want a really like gross image. Otherwise just heart Works opening. And then, you know, the suppressed volcano or energy or whatever within might come out for a while, but it, it could be cathartic. Like if I say, oh, Vani Pemihun, you start crying, is that necessarily a problem? <laughs> You're not at a job interview. <laughs> <laughs> That's where the leave it as it is and the see it as it is and the be as is comes in. And there's an awareness in that too. So that's, you know, that's life as it is. That's your life. That's your karmic conditioning, your, you know, makeup. And then there's your karmic perceptions or, can, you know, how you relate to it. Like you said, it's, uh, what do you say, difficult or something or challenging or, you know, painful. So that's kind of how you relate to it. And maybe it truly is that. So well, you, you I have mean, to I deal with that. I think of people or situations and I'm like, I, I feel very sad that they don't know. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I have received Avalokiteshvara, so a couple years ago and it's been building. Yeah, so it's good to cultivate compassion and feel with them and resonate. You know, resonating means like moving together, not just pitiful, I should help them. But when you resonate together, you're like moving together, you know, feeling with them, empathizing, moving together. It's already supportive for somebody else to have somebody with, there with them or talk to somebody like them, right? So the, the, with, the empathy, the resonance is very, could be healing and helpful. But there's a big difference between like pity and, you know, feeling sorry for them, or sorrow even, and compassion, which is sort of without object. It's just because there's so much of this in the world that it just doesn't even 
it's not really attached to the other. No, I don't. I don't feel pity. I feel with them. So yeah. that's what I'm saying. I'm just making a distinction. Compassion is sort of even almost transpersonal. Not they're just a condition of that for the moment. But you know, by resonating with others, also, and recognizing in them the what you say, not knowing, which brings all kinds of problems. Looking for love in all the wrong places, harming themselves, whatever, you know. And then you know, there's a lot of people, there's a lot of beings, people. Let's say in that situation, so your compassion grows and stabilizes, and also you know you have a little more wisdom or discernment about how to channel it or modulate it or how to re respond to it, not just blindly react with tears or jump in, you know, if you can't swim or whatever. Thank you. It, it, it's always taught that, uh, and people often ask, how is like the teaching about shunyata or emptiness or no separate self help you like care? Well, where's the compassion in that? Or it sounds like too rarefied and philosophical, but when you experience that, then you see people clinging to something that's not there and fighting over it and gathering all the marbles to feed, you know, something that has no use, little use for marbles, that needs loving attention, not, you know, the child who needs loving attention, not a lot of toys while the parents are never there. So ignorance is the cause of the suffering, so wisdom is the antidote that naturally brings compassion for people, beings, ignorantly harming themselves, really, going down all the wrong rabbit holes, and again and again, and even becoming habits and addictions and ways of life and ways of governing and ways of treating groups of people. But, but that's a tough one. Also, uh, here in the world is a harsh place. It's also a beautiful, miraculous place. But we're sensitive beings. So keep your heart open and beware of becoming like hypersensitive. You know, sensitive and tender heart is good, but soft headed and like loose, you know, like unstable is not so great. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, 
H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now.